This is Michelle McKenzie, and welcome to the WTF Podcast, where we demystify entrepreneurship and the fog around funding. There is a saying that a delay is not denial. It is only a sign that you need peace, patience, and trust that in perfect timing, what you want will come to you. My guest is the personification of this saying. Afiang Williams is a Nigerian entrepreneur and founder and CEO of Real Fruit. Real Fruit processes and distributes locally grown fruits to over 450 supermarkets, airlines, schools, hotels, and export sales via Amazon.com. Real Fruit is an award-winning brand, winning not only an international women in business competition in the Netherlands, but also the Creative Focus Africa competition. Afiang was also recognized by Forbes magazine as one of the most promising 30 under 30 entrepreneurs in 2015. In this episode, we'll discuss Afiang's nine-year journey to raising Series A funding, the role trust and vision played during the wait, her advice for women in agribusiness, and how to meet the $200 billion demand for financing for agribusinesses. Now, a quick sidebar before we get into the interview. As you know, entrepreneurs are very busy people. We caught Afiang on the fly in this episode, so there might be some slight background noises. I encourage you to try and ignore those and focus on the content that is rich and gem-filled. So stay calm and listen on. Thank you for having me. So we'll get into the conversation, starting with why you quit your job with Endeavor in South Africa to move back to Nigeria to do what no one else in Nigeria was doing at the time, which is processing dry fruit commercially. What is the problem that you were solving when you founded Real Fruit? And why was this problem so compelling to you? Um, so, yes, uh, as you mentioned, I had a really, really good job, which actually was um, my um, starting point into and foray into entrepreneurship and what really propelled me to become an entrepreneur. Um, in my job at Endeavor, I worked with entrepreneurs and what I admired most about them was um, the fact that they took an outsized risk and that risk meant reward not just for themselves, but for um, their countries, especially around job creation and producing um, better goods and services for the communities at large. And um, after four years, I kept thinking I wanted to delve deeper. I wanted to work closer with entrepreneurs uh, because uh, job creation began to uh, nag me as a problem. Unemployment was a really big challenge in um, in South Africa where I was, but also in my home country of Nigeria. And I really wanted to do something about it. And I I just realized that, you know, becoming an entrepreneur was probably my best um bet at, at really tackling that problem that really um, motivated me to quit my job and be, begin a business. So when I was looking for a business um, to start, it was really just uh, a vehicle to create jobs, especially for young people and women. And um, I picked a sector that I thought would do that, would maximize that, uh, being agribusiness. And I picked fruit because uh, I read online that fruit, the fruit value chain created more jobs than other traditional value chains. And that's kind of how I got into my um, into my sector. And then when I was just looking at how to launch and what product to launch, um, dried fruit just seemed like an opportunity because it didn't exist in Nigeria. So of course the naive, um, 
you know, entrepreneur as I was said, oh, I'd be a first mover and I'd be the first one to capture all the market, etc. But what I didn't realize was was being a pioneer also means you have to build a market that doesn't exist and that takes time. Yes. Um, but that's really the maze that landed me back. And I told my mom, mom, I'm quitting my job and I'm buying a one-way ticket back home. And she um, she said, okay, which which sometimes I ask her why she, she did that, <laughs> uh, why she was so supportive. <laughs> and, um, um, and I did that. I, I took the risk and I came back home and I've never looked back. Well, I'm glad that your mom was supportive of that because I think out of love and care for you, she probably would have asked you if you were crazy. But the fact yeah, that I was she just said, okay, that. was good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she said, uh, she said once I bought my ticket, she knew I was serious, but till then she, she just was letting me dream. And then it became real once I, I quit and I bought my ticket and I decided to go home. And, and of course, my mother's been a great support for me ever since and one of the anchors of this business. Um, so I've had her support for, for over a decade and it's been wonderful. I think it's great that you said she just allowed you to dream mm-hmm. because I think that being able to be a dreamer is, an, is a hallmark of being an entrepreneur and also yeah. that naivete, right? <laughs> because if you yes, knew all yes. that you were going to confront, you probably wouldn't start. No, so I would not have. <laughs> yeah. In, in, a, in, a, in this scenario, I think ignorance is a little bit bliss. <laughs> so, 100%. I'm going to read this quote by someone you know quite well. She's an investor in your business, Otto Sakwe. And it says, remember you're special. You have a unique ability to remain steadfast in light of challenges. So don't ever get frazzled or easily dissuaded. Trust Mm -hmm. yourself and believe in your vision. How important was it to you to remain steadfast and believe in your vision during the nine years it took to raise your Series A? Did you ever feel like quitting at any point during that time when it might have looked like it wouldn't happen for you? I mean, that's such a powerful quote because I think that's, you know, for me, probably one of the biggest advantages uh, or or I would say traits that has carried me over the nine years. Um, steadfastness, per, uh, you know, um, persistence, grit, um, just the ability to stick with things when it's hard and when it's unclear and when it's difficult. And of course, as a pioneering entrepreneur, bringing a new product to market, I, the first five years of my um, journey was just that. It was, you know, wondering when, when, the, when the tide would turn, when the inflection point would come, when I would stop getting called to, to take back my products because it was selling slowly or that people didn't want it or, you know, you know, just all the questions um, that I asked myself around why I, I decided to do this, even when the ultimate goal I was chasing, which was creating jobs, happened slowly because we weren't growing so quickly in the early days that, I mean, my first five years, I think we only had like maybe 20 employees and I wanted to create a thousand jobs. And I was like, you know, this is not even fulfilling my inner mission. So um, there was a lot of doubt. And I think just uh, luckily being the person I am who is very um, one um, driven internally internally motivated um, who loves to finish what she starts and who just believes um, again in in, in in you know in the pursuit of what of my purpose my life's purpose I, I kept at it and I'm so glad I did but um, yes you, you one has to build that resolve one has to build that internal belief and self-belief and one has to really become um you know your own motivator and cheerleader to really you know be able to drag you through the um 
you know, the tough times. I remember in the early days, it was a lot of crying on the phone to my mom. And then obviously, and then later my husband, I would cry to him all the time. It's all over, you know, just, you know, very doomsday. And, and my husband has been a great uh, mentor to me as well, just always reminding me to be solution oriented because that's where I feel empowered. That's where I feel purposeful. That's where I feel powerful that if there's a challenge or problem, instead of, you know, feeling hard done by, um, feeling that you can find a way around it is where you, where I draw a lot of strength. And when I do so, I get more confident, etc. So, you know, this idea of just having, having a lot of radical self-belief is very important in entrepreneurship. Um, because at, at, at a point you have to, you have to be able to, you know, gather yourself, right? Your family and friends love you, but they, you know, they can't keep on, you know, carrying your emotional baggage all the time. And you have to just also be strong and have faith. And, and I think all those things I've, are muscles I've developed over time. And now it takes a lot to rile me up. You know, I've, I've faced enough that even if I heard there was a fire in my factory right now, I would already be thinking of what, how we would move past it. You know, I would not be overwhelmed or, or downcast. Cause I just feel I'm so, I'm so, you know, I feel, I feel so strong that I could actually, I, we could actually solve and overcome any challenge that comes our way. Um, but it's not happened over time. In the beginning of my business, I was very nervous, very doubtful, a lot of anxiety over why, you know, if I chose the right idea, etc. cetera. And um, I had to work through that. I had to build my own confidence, build my own self-belief and, and it's paid off now. Um, and I think those things through the journey have helped me, were also very helpful in my raising finance and even selling the story that I'm, I'm out to build, you know, because it's still a big vision that I haven't achieved yet. But I, I come with a lot of conviction that I can I can achieve it because I've done a lot to prove that in the past. So I, I, I you know, I, I don't I don't think an entrepreneur can survive without having a strong sense of self-belief and a strong sense of purpose. So the things I think I just heard you say that are really important for surviving that period of weight is radical self-belief, having people, shoulders to cry on when you need it, but knowing that you, that cannot always be the default, right? Yes. Yes. <laughs> and also in terms of dealing with stress and overwhelm to be able to look past the current situation mm -hmm. to where you're trying to go and using that as a motivating force. Absolutely. I have a question for you. What did you do to address market adoption of dried fruits? Because you talked about the fact that you would get calls to come take the product back because it wasn't being sold quickly enough. So I know there is a barrier and that's something that you deal with when you're a first mover, right? Yes. You're the first one in the market trying to bring something new. How did you address that? to get uptake of dried fruits for people to build that demand? That's a very good question. Um, you know, I think, to be honest, the, 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 there's two main answers. One was that there's it takes time. So I, I took the time. There, there's just no, you know, no way around that. I'm, as long as I knew, I was sure that Nigerians liked the product, they liked the taste. Um, it was more about, could we get it to them conveniently enough? And could they keep seeing it and buying it repeatedly to, for it to become a staple? And and that process takes longer than anyone would imagine. Um, I remember when, um you know, one of my friends told me it took him five years to raise money for his factory. And I said, oh my God, never it would never take me five years I, I would quit I couldn't be in this business for five years without you know scaling up and and it it actually took five years for us to just 
be assured that the market wanted our products. So we, we, we took the time. We didn't stop putting our products in stores. Um, in Nigeria specifically, when I moved back, there was just a ballooning and a blossoming of formal retail. So convenience stores, pharmacies, supermarket chains, um, which really helped with the adoption because now a lot more people were shopping in modern retail outlets. Um, so it was easy, easier for us to get our products back. I mean, it, it, it started getting progressively easier. And we just said, you know what, if, if we're everywhere, so put boots on the ground, hire a lot of sales reps. If we're everywhere and we know this product is good because when we poll customers one-on-one, they like the taste, they order. Um, we just have to keep pushing till till it becomes, you know, till everything comes together. And that's what it what happened. Um, and then we started seeing our sales growing really rapidly. And we just started seeing that we were doubling our revenues. Even as of last year, we more than doubled our revenues over 2020. So we know that there's still a lot of growth um, opportunity for the business. And and, and and we just, I just didn't anticipate it would take that long, but there is, um, there is a time it takes and, and entrepreneurs need to be aware of that. But in that time, you cannot stop putting your product in front of customers' faces, listening to their feedback and just improving the product as much as you can for them. Um, and we, we did all of that. Um, and at the same time, really learning and understanding the market better than anybody else. I, I believe, you know, building knowledge and learning about the sector as a whole was also is also part of our biggest competitive advantage. So I use that time as well to just understand like what are the taste differences of my of Nigerian customers across different um you know regions what does seasonality of fruit mean for our business model all sorts of things we were just always learning and growing and innovating because we're the first mover so um we we, we stayed the course and we were persistent and we were very proactive um in the beginning nobody would distribute our products um nobody would actually take it off our off our hands and 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 shelve it so we did it ourselves and today we have a fleet of over 15 cars and over 20 salespeople in in the country delivering our products to over 600 stores in Nigeria so that has now what be what was our huge challenge and a huge burden has now become one of our biggest competitive advantages because we are directly connected to our customers through these retail points and it's 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 absolutely game-changing for our business so um yeah we were very proactive we hit the streets we you know i sold everywhere i did everything and um our team as we grew just focused on it and and it turned around so um that's kind of how we we achieve success in that realm i have a mentee who just started a business and i'm going to make sure that she listens to this episode and to this part in particular about the power of patience and that it takes time and because mm-hmm. it might be taking longer than you think, it doesn't mean that you're failing. Oh, no. It no, just not at all. means that you need to keep at it and to keep yes. innovating and trying different things. And I liked that you were out there doing the work yourself because when you start bringing on staff, it's easy to tell them that, hey, I know what your job is. I did your job. Right? So I'm not asking you to do something I have not done myself. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's very important. Yes. I mean, no. as an entrepreneur in the early days, you, you have to get your hands dirty and you have to be curious about every part of the business, even the parts you don't enjoy. I mean, people, I tell people all the time, they're parts of my business I don't want to touch with a 10-foot pole, but it's my job to know enough about that to be able to direct and make sure that, you know, we're, we're growing. And so, um, yeah, it, it is important to get your hands dirty for sure. 
Based on your fundraising experience, so this is a series of questions. So first, what went well? Second, what are three pieces of advice you would give to other women in agribusiness about fundraising? And third, what do you wish, if anything, that you could have done differently? So what went well? So what went well is that we raised funding. And, I, I, you know, that's a huge achievement for not just me as in my sector, but in general. In general, most enterprises don't go on to raise Series A funding um, and actually don't raise funding outside of their family and friends, etc. So I'm very, very fortunate and blessed and, and actually privileged to be one that has been able to scale that hurdle. Look for milestone funding. Be very, you know, disciplined and like specific about what you're raising. Raise small, smaller amounts. Two is, um, um, you know, focus on on getting your documents in a row. And I think three is really, I, I forget my third point, but um, I think what did I say? I can't remember. Sorry. I hope you have that in the recording. I do. You said something important, and it's about chunking the vision so that the people that you're pitching it to can understand it, connect to it, and buy in to it. Yes, yes, If you make it too big for them, they just don't see it. So you have to chunk the vision and make it relatable to something that they can understand. Yeah, so you have to be flexible, sort of be, be sticky on your vision, but flexible on the path so so that, um, you know, you can navigate the realities. Oh, yes. And the last thing I said was revenue growth. So please focus on growing your revenues. Um, you know, all, all too often you hear entrepreneurs tell you, oh, we're, we're addressing a $500 billion food market in Africa. And that doesn't mean anything when you don't have, you haven't demonstrated how you are getting that piece of the pie. So those things matter. Um, you know, the commercials the financing and obviously being able to chunk your vision up, you know, chop and change it um, to suit the realities of your financing needs and options. Oh, and the last thing that I would, okay, so the the third question you asked me is what would I have done better? I wasted a lot of time talking to investors who did not, um, who were not interested in my sector really, really squarely. And I I think um, obviously it's, you know, a hallmark of entrepreneurs, how hard you hustle and you work hard and you want to work hard at, you know, at, at chasing the kind of funding that you need to grow. But what I realized over the years is that if you don't meet four out of five check boxes of investors, they will not invest in you. So your best bet is to find the ones that would uh, by looking at the track record and seeing if they've invested in companies like you start to network with them. It may take two to three years. I was in talks with my investor for five years, keeping them updated on my progress. I, they, I, I was, I was partnered with them even before they raised and closed their fund. Um, and what that happened was the moment um, they raised the fund, I was number two um, on the on the pipeline to get investment. So start networking with the right investors that would look at your um, your space um, and for whom you meet a lot of that criteria. I, I, I think it's a waste of time, honestly, to be talking to investors if they've not invested in your geography, in your sector before, or if, you know, if they don't like, you know, typically do the size of your business, they will, the likelihood that they will bend is near zero. So I, I spent a lot of time, and I think if I had focused more um, on on finding the entrepreneur and the the investors that fit my um, fit my my profile directly, I would have had more success. So that's kind of what I would advise, what what I would have done differently um, in my time raising funding. I think that's important. So it's not just enough to hustle. You got to hustle smart. Don't hustle hard. Yes. Hustle smart, and make yeah. sure that you're doing your homework and that you're approaching mm-hmm. investors that are likely to invest in you. 
So I'm speaking with Afyong Williams, award-winning entrepreneur and co-founder of Real Fruit, a Nigerian company that processes and distributes locally grown fruits about her Series A raise and the $200 billion financing gap for agribusiness. Afyong, I would like to ask you another important question. (laughs) And before I do that, I would like to read something that you said. This investment takes real fruit, referring to your Series A, takes real fruit to the next level. We can meet increased demand for our products and tackle one of the biggest challenges, raw material supply. We're thrilled that this will unleash a greater impact on our value chain by increasing farmer incomes and creating up to 300 decent jobs for Nigerians. And I'm glad that you said decent jobs and not just jobs. Yeah. What are, I mean, that's your, what are your biggest, boldest ideas and vision for real fruit? And how does this raise help to get you closer to that bold vision? Uh, this is a great question. Thank you so much for it. Um, you know, like I'm glad you you, you highlighted the decent jobs because I'm, I I you know that's been my mission since before I even knew what it, creating a decent job meant. I wanted jobs that provide young people in Nigeria dignity, um, and particularly opportunities for young women. Um, and that has shown in my business. Um, and I'm really proud of some of the successes we've had. Uh, for 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 us, um, obviously manufacturing jobs and just more formalized jobs offer things that um you know um offer more security to to our employees offer things like health insurance pensions and all these little social benefits that really add value and even some of our employees get access to loans and um you know be are able to further their education so really working provides a lot of opportunities for people to self-actualize and and that for me is the goal if i'm going to create a job i wanted to help somebody as much as it can to become the best um, version of themselves so i that that really inspires me and even till today is what inspires me um you know our series a funding has unlocked what i i believe is is really the next level of my company's goal which is to really be an ecosystem leader in the fruit value chain um you know when you start an agribusiness in nigeria or in africa you realize that where even if you're playing in one sector you end up having to dabble in other sectors because there's huge inefficiencies and um, you need to solve problems across your value chain to defend your core business so where you know in other markets you could just make a call and order um you know, 40 tons of fruit in Nigeria, if you don't know the farms that will give you that and you send your trucks there and you make sure, you know, the farms are are producing well and are producing the quality, you will not get anything to feed your factory. So we have started playing this role where we're we're really adding value at all levels of the value chain from our distribution network to our processing, research and development, innovating on new products that don't exist. Um, For instance, we're the first company to have like created shelf-stable coconut water that we're rolling out into stores, which is a waste product that we're turning into value. Um, These are things that, you know, are not necessarily core to our business, but we have to do to scale our business. And these are the bold visions that excite me, that can I develop and innovate new products that don't exist currently and continue to add value to my value chain, which then, you know, brings new knowledge, creates more jobs, um, creates more products and services for Nigerians. Um, even if I if I take it down to our farm, my big vision is really to work with over 2,000 fruit farmers, resuscitate them to be able to grow 
better quality fruit than they currently grow, which means that we have to provide them with improved seedlings, improved to, to, you know, to start planting, improve their yield and move these farmers from sort of smallholder poor to middle income. And that's a huge feat, but, and it requires, you know, a lot of, um, you know, sort of channeling resources to them that they don't currently have. But I want to see a future in the next five to 10 years of this business where I can say that my business enabled all of that. It enabled not just, you know, creating a thousand direct jobs. It enabled, you know, 2000 farmers becoming middle income, you know, farmers with a ready market for their product. And it also enabled the, the research and development and innovation of new products that are created here, developed here for the country and for the world. And for me, that would be huge success. It would be that, you know, this business went above and beyond just being a commercial entity to really lifting up, um, um, to li lifting up an industry. And, and hopefully when that happens, what, 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 what it would do would be attract more people, more jobs, more processing into the man and into the fruit space. And hopefully people coming behind me won't spend 10 years or nine years raising funding. It would happen less because more problems have been solved. So that, uh, that is my big vision. And it's one I'm really excited to tackle now. And of course, having spent 10 years, um, you know, it's our 10th anniversary this year. So I'm really proud of that as well. Um, you know, solving problems, I, I even feel more ready and more confident and excited to take on bigger challenges and solve them. So, so those are my big goals and I'm really working towards them and they really, you know, and, you know, and energize me, um, to, to, to do more. Happy anniversary, by the way. Thank you. Thank you. And I work in agriculture, so I know how important that value chain strengthening is and working to develop the producers at the base of your value chain. Yes. Now, it's trans a must. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a must. It definitely is. You spoke at an event addressing the $200 billion demand for finance for agribusinesses. What are the transformative changes that you desire to see that might help supply meat demand? Um, I think one of the biggest um, biggest ones is I would love to see more investment going into primary agriculture. I know it's very risky and there's just a lot of disincentive. But but to be honest, I don't think that we um, as a continent or even country can really um, you know continue to really build and scale agribusinesses if if that part if that part of the sector is not you know treated with um, you know urgency and with commercial financing. So what happens now is a lot of donor support is what is funding any development in that sec in that part of the value chain and it's usually very um it's 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 very prescribed it, it's not it's not really um it's not really the money's not really free to do what i think needs to be done with it which is allow for more commercialization of farms and commercialization of growth of crops it's usually you know restricted in some way so i would love to see one donors play a more commercial role in that space um to see greater results and to um, get more, you know, more, more models that enable private funding to, to really focus on commercial agriculture. Because that, if you, if you don't have, um, like I said, commercial supply chain, I mean, primary agri um, production happening, it's really stifling to scaling, um, you know, processing and agribusiness because raw material supply will forever be the biggest risk to any um, processing company. So that's the big one I would like to see change. Um, and um, 
you know, I think there's a lot of, you know, opportunity there because I think it's still very profitable. Um, you know, you have um, some crops that, that make 40% margin. And, and, and of course, you know, once that starts to happen at scale, the food prices come down. So food, food prices can only come down when there's huge commercial activity going on that brings down all the prices of like logistics and all that stuff across the value chain. But right now, you know, the, the, the smallholder model is very limiting because it makes it's fragmented and makes aggregation logistics and all this stuff expensive. Uh, we've been mapping um, mangoes from our source and the cost of transport is more expensive than the cost of the, of, of actually per kg of mango. So it, it's hugely inefficient. And I think only commercial activity sort of solves that problem or reduces that burden, which starts to make, um, you know, more commercial sense, bring down prices of food and really enable value added and manufacturing in agribusiness. Now, what are the three most important lessons that you've learned so far from your entrepreneurship journey that you want to share with female entrepreneurs in particular? Um, so I would say that uh, persistence is everything. That's the first one. I think that, um, you know, the entrepreneurial journey is a hot, one of the hardest pursuits that you will go through and, and, and great things are hard. They don't come easy. So having the mindset and building the mindset, I don't think you have it from day one, but continually building the mindset that allows you to forge ahead and just being persistent is one of the biggest lessons I would, I would endeavor any female entrepreneur to have. The second is about, um, you know, one of, one of the biggest things that I've, that have helped me one, you know, looking at my business, even through the lens of my husband, is that I need to be I needed to be bolder. I learned to be bolder. So um, when I started my business, I would be very shy about talking about it. And when I looked at my husband pitch my business, I'd be like, you know, you're lying. Like you're you're selling something that doesn't exist. Um, and even even in even in the way like you know he would you know encourage me to ask people for help without you know all the pleasantries and all the you know, fear about what they would say, like just go for it and just, you know, ask. And, and, and I started doing it. And most times people want to help. So I think for female entrepreneurs, there's this thing about us being a bit too modest and a bit too, um, you know, maybe, um, how would I say, like a bit too, uh, uh, you know, wanting to be very, very like, refl you know, you know, sort of not, not sell a bigger than vision or bold vision because it may feel like, you know, you're not being authentic. But I found that people resonate with big visions, number one. And number two, when you're bold and you ask, demand things, you usually get it. And, and I think that's something I've learned along the way. So I would, I would advise, um, people to, um, you know, to women to be bolder and to just, you know, not be shy about, um, you know, articulating what they want in their visions and also just um, asking for what they want. So I was, I used to be very shy about asking people for things, especially people I didn't know, I had no relationship with. And I, it turned out that if you ask most people you don't know for something, they will actually help you. I think, um, you know, it's, I'm, not, I'm now good at doing that. So I really think that's helped me a lot. And the third one is really um, two things. One, building your network and gathering knowledge. I cannot overstate how much um, learning from others has saved me mistakes in terms of money, in terms of my time, and in terms of just going the wrong way. And building a strong network has really been the invisible hand that has made my business what it is. And I encourage women to really be focused on networking and learning from others and, and really seeking out the experience ahead of them 
to to really just leapfrog um, as much time. I say, you know, for me, it's not just about, it's a lot about what I don't do versus what I do and and getting the right advice to navigate the path I'm on um, that saves me time, saves me money and makes sure that I am forging ahead has also been just super valuable to me. So I would say um, your network is your, ne- your net worth and, I, and it really, really um, helps here, especially in a country like Nigeria where, you know, it's kind of low trust and, and you really need people to vouch for you and, 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 and social relationships matter a lot in advancing, advancing, you know, your ideas and goals and things like that. Um, building a strong network has really helped me. So those are the three things I would advise women to focus on. And, um, I think that, um, you know, those things have guided me and, and really advanced me in my entrepreneurial journey. I like it. The imposter syndrome for women, it's real. And, we just have to get much better at asking for what we need and not being so afraid because if we do ask, we just might get what we ask for. So Afyang, as we're wrapping up, what inspires you and gives you hope? Um, I think I am mainly inspired by, you know, I am inspired by people from all walks of life who, who, you know, who really just, you know, uh, you know, take the, the cards life deals them and really, um, you know, just advances and, and try to move forward in any way. So I draw inspiration, not from just from, from, from people who are persevering, who are even in situations where they have less than I do and just, you know, come from worse off, but just are completely driven to, to self-actualize, to make the best of their lives. I think I just, I just find there's so much power in that. So I draw inspiration from that. I draw inspiration from myself. Like I mentioned, I'm a very motivated person. So there's something about me telling myself I'm going to do something and doing it. I'm a Christian. So I definitely run my business like somebody who is um, counting on God's uh, God's grace and mercy to carry me through. And um, I also um, draw faith and inspiration from my employees. They're, they're a big reason I started my business and silently and, you know, you know, telling them and also just observing how much they grow and how they they push forward and how they believe in the company really inspires me deeply. So um, I, try, I try to, you know, I try to really... Um, you know, just just really focus on what my why and, and my why um, of, of, of starting and growing this business and continuing to believe in it. And, um, you know, it's also very much linked to my purpose in life um, and the reason I feel like I was put on this earth. So there's a really powerful tie there that really drives me forward. So a lot of things um, inspire me. Um, but but um, I think, you know, mainly people, people who are just who are just um trying to succeed at life are really, no matter what challenges face them, are really inspirational to me. Thank you so much, Afyang. I think that was a great question to end on. Thank you so much for stopping by the WTF podcast. Tell us where we can follow you and Real Fruit on social media. Sure. Um, our, you know, we're, we're, we're on Instagram at Real Fruit, R-E-E-L-F-R-U-I-T. Um, my, my handle on Twitter is at Afion Williams, my full name. We're on LinkedIn as well at Real Fruit. And then obviously our website, realfruit.com. Um, so, um, that's, uh, those you can get in touch and ask any questions. And, you know, I'm hopefully I'm looking forward to engaging with your listeners, um, after the podcast. 
Thank you so much, Afyang. To my listeners, I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you like it, if you do like it, rate it, review it, download it, or share it. Episodes drop on Fridays on the Alive Podcast Network. You can also subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and more. And don't forget to turn on notifications. If you'd like to be a guest, send an email to wheresthefunding at gmail.com. Follow the podcast on Instagram at wheresthefunding underscore podcast. And follow me, your host, Michelle J. McKenzie, on LinkedIn. Join me next Friday for the next episode.